Hi, I'm Ed Kessler and welcome to Encounter. Today we're talking about religion and disability. What does religion have to say about disability? Its failings, its strengths, its weaknesses and some righteous anger. Hello. Hi, hi, hi. How are you? I'm Ed. I'm Florence. Nice to meet you. Good to see you. How are you doing? All right. Thank you so much, both of you. My guests today are Pam Mungrew and Florence Alds. And of course, we've got David Perry. Thank you, Ed. I'm Pam Mungrew and I'm a broadcast journalist with a local BBC radio station and I present the Sunday Breakfast Show. I also teach my sins. I'm Florence Olds. I used to be the Disabled Students Officer at Cambridge University Students' Union after studying English at Cambridge University. Generally I'm quite interested in disability but also gender studies and general LGBT issues and I write sometimes for Blueprint magazine. Right and do you have a disability yourself? I do. I have dyspraxia which is a specific learning disorder I believe which affects motor coordination but also mental processing and processing stimuli but I also have anxiety and depression which are a great time. (laughs) Great combination. Yeah. And Pam? I have a mild form of spina bifida that's a congenital birth defect and well, yeah, there's not much you can say about a congenital birth defect, really, is there? <laughs> You've had it for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> it's like my best bud. It, it's a mobility impairment more than anything else. It, it affects how the, the way I walk. And in terms of the interaction between, you know, religion and disability, I mean, you've got your own story as well, haven't you? Uh, I do. So it kind of goes back to the fact that because my parents themselves are of different religions, they decided that they weren't going to force on their children any form of religion. It was our choice whether we did or we didn't. And apparently from a very young age, I loved sitting and watching Songs of Praise. So I, I kind of grew up with that and wanted to find out more and decided at the age of eight that I wanted to be baptised. All of this was great. My parents were really supportive. But as I got older, I began to struggle with the idea that this particular god or a god could decide that it was okay for one person to to, to function normally, quote unquote, and for someone like me and others have a disability. Why? And, you know, I went through the whole sort of, is it genetic? Is it because I did something bad in a previous life? Or is it because God's not as nice as people think he is? Because I needed to understand why I had the disability. Mm. And I couldn't find a way to explain it or justify it. I mean, I wasn't going to blame my parents because why would you? So, yeah, God and I end up having a rather tenuous relationship. I can deal with the idea of God when something's going bad in life and I'm just, you know, offer up a quick prayer. But the rest of the time, I kind of think I don't understand why it's acceptable for some people to be physically and mentally different. And that's the same issue with theodicy isn't it and suffering why do some people suffer more than than other people why doesn't God intervene in a way to you know to save people who are facing punishments or oppression or persecution or or suffer from disability and what conclusion did you come to I haven't yet you're on that journey that's what you're here for (laughs) I, I really struggle with it I really struggle with it because I mean I've I've been in London before which is you know it's always a fascinating place and Two of my favourite experiences in London, or three actually, one was a woman stopping me, just random woman grabbing hold of my hand saying, can I pray for you? And I'm kind of like, but, but why would you want to? And she's like, oh, but look at you, you know, let me pray for you. And, and I'm thinking, but what is that going to do? So I said, yes, go ahead. 
do what you want. I'm heading that way. And then another occasion, I'm coming through the tube and I can hear this voice over the top of my head going on about the sins of the father. And I'm not taking any notice because it's London and there's always somebody doing something. And I, I get down to the bottom of the escalator and I turn around because this voice is just going on and on and on and it's the guy is actually saying it at me. Thankfully, he didn't stop and talk to me, he just carried on walking. And I'm thinking, but, okay. Then I got stopped by a Jehovah's Witness because there was a Kingdom Hall at the end of the, the road that I lived in in London. And she had seen me any number of times, but I've always managed to avoid eye contact and kind of just keep walking. She got a hold of me one day and said, would you chat? So we chatted. And she handed me the sleeve thing. She said, I think this will help you. This will help you with your journey. I get back, and again, it's about the sins of the father. And I'm thinking, what on earth did my dad do? <laughs> like, seriously, what did the man do that I'm ending up like this? And so I never found an answer that was satisfactory. And I'm a very black and white person. I'm not very good with grey. And for me, God falls into the whole category of grey. It's funny, because for me, I'm very much a grey person. Is he? You know, and I always have a problem with when there are simple, clear-cut answers. And so for me, I don't think I could, on a personal level in my journey and, and, and search for meaning in life and sort of grappling with big questions like you're just asking, I can't accept there is a clear-cut yes-no answer. Maybe that's a bit of a cop-out. I mean, what do you think, Florence? You, you've heard this. Do you have, have you had the same sort of journey, challenge? I haven't had it happen to me, but I've definitely heard it happen to friends of mine, especially those who have like noticeable physical impairments. But I was thinking about this recently. I always find it kind of strange that there's that you have those people who are then reaching out on an individual level. And if the idea of being a religious person is often to be like a steward of a society and a planet and to make it like the best place for other inhabitants who you have compassion for, it seems weird to try and enact a compassion on an individual level rather than reaching for like a, a social level. So from like a disability studies perspective, there's this idea of like, a medical model of disability that sees disability in an individual, but there's also the social model which sees disability as like a societal creation, as separate from like impairment. So you have impairment which is like literally the things that your body does differently to others, and then you have disability which is society not putting in like adaptations for you. So like I was thinking that like as much as the individual is an easy way to try and look for this positive change to make as, an, as a person. I think those people would be better off turning to maybe local government and seeing what kind of political change they can try and make as a religious person. Right, right. So more of that social action, if yeah. in, in, in a way. Yeah. In a way. David? Yeah, there's an interesting um, explanation. I don't know if it's an explanation. I'm quoting John. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, I don't know if, if that gives you an answer. Is that, is, that, is, is that too easy? You, it's you, a cop out. Yes, yes, I can see that in yeah. your face. And it sounds, you know, please forgive me if it sounds like I'm being disrespectful. I don't mean to. But it's almost like a, well, I can't really explain why this happened. But God's going to make this person really yeah. great. Yeah. I would love to be a great person. I really would. And if God were to make me great, to show off, not show off, but to, to display. Yeah, to showcase who yeah, you are. Who I am and, and what he or she mm. can do. Mm. Why does it have to be in such a way that 
I'm still shunned by society. When I say I, I use that in the in the broader term. I don't yeah, mean representative. Yeah. Yes, but there is that shunning of. Yes, even in this day and age, and I am very lucky. Please know that I get that. You know, I have a fantastic family that encourage and support me in every which way. I've had an amazing education, and I've had opportunities that many people most don't people, get. if you if you were born in another part of the world or at a different time, it, it would have been much much worse. Can I just tease out mm. something though, Pam? Because you present the Sunday morning <laughs> yeah. show, and of course, traditionally the early morning Sunday show is you know the god slot in many yeah. ways, right? It is. And in fact, you've had a number of people on faith leaders offering their pearls of wisdom Mm -hmm. have you ever sort of engaged with that in terms of the questions of disability or have you just uh, been in your professional pose and just allowed it to uh, I've wanted to I mean I'm very interested in developing a documentary and a, a program around this I don't deal with it within the show because it's not actually a topic that we've we've had to cover we tend to try and be as as current with news developments from a faith and ethical perspective as we can be and one of the other reasons that I tend not to, to tackle this subject on the show is because traditionally it's all about blue badges and accessibility into churches and synagogues and, and mosques. And for me, the issues are more profound. Yeah, the deeper sort of existential yeah. questions, aren't they? That's they what are. you're really asking. You know, who am I in all of this? And the sort of e- equality of me as as absolutely equal to anybody else whatever physique they they may have i mean i have the added bonus of being a woman of color and i bring this up because one of the things that i learned and it was the mid 80s and there i am going to church every sunday morning because i was really good about it until i got to 13 and this is cambridge and it was the mid 80s and it was a very white neighborhood that i lived in very white neighbourhood and, and very, very middle-class neighbourhood. And there was this, just this one little brown face in the congregation. And at that point, I started to question what it meant to love thy neighbour. And in it, I brought into all, all these things of, you know, race, gender, disability, the whole lot. And I couldn't match everything up. And so for, it is it is a much more existential question than whether or not you can get a ramp into a 15th century church building. What do you think, Florence? Because your experience here in the university as disabilities officer, you've had other challenges to think about. Well, I was I was thinking earlier when we was mentioned the example of the blind man. Sounds a little bit like inspiration porn to me. Mm. Like, this, <laughs> like yes. disabled people are either a burden on society, or they're beautiful, or, or yeah, or superhumans who we exploit for views on Facebook or whatever. So I think it's a bit strange that there isn't a space for disabled people to just exist without some grand theological excuse for how we can be permitted in society. I, I, I mean, as a, I hope, sort of sympathetic, able-bodied person, <laughs> I think we tend to sort of favour the heroic model of disability. I mean, Stephen Hawking, yeah. brilliant mind chapter of Decaying Body, or Frank Gardner, sort of brilliant foreign correspondent shot and then coming back. I mean, these are admirable people, clearly, but we need to take a more nuanced view of, of this subject, I think. And I think part of the problem is is there's also that sort of disengaged moment between somebody who becomes disabled in whatever way, yeah. being more heroic because they've had to overcome further adversity than the person that was born disabled because, 
from the moment of your birth, you are in some way different and you are in some way a burden. And I think it's easier for people to relate to the other when the other started out in the same way as they did. Mm. You know, you can look at it from another perspective as well, which is that men with disabilities are generally... It's it's an extreme statement to make. It's a very generalised statement to make. But are often in some way more acceptable than women with disabilities because I had a conversation many years ago with someone who, who tried to explain it to me and said, in the simplest way possible, as a woman with a disability, it's perceived that you can't reproduce and therefore your purpose and, and your stock kind of drops even further. It's really interesting because do you think to an extent that in terms of being a woman, being a woman of colour, being disabled, either in combination or specifically the gender issue makes it even harder? It does. Mm. Because I just wonder, um, when I was thinking about it and engaging with disabled students that we have, it's about seeing that person for who they are rather than just seeing that person who's disabled. I mean, to an extent, it's so easy. The first thing you see in somebody is what they look like. So if they're disabled, that's what you see rather than the person themselves. And trying to normalise things. There's a normal relationship. And is there a reluctance for abled people to engage with disabled because they are reluctant to treat the disabled as normal? Is that still a problem? Possibly, but there are statistics that reckon around 20% of the general population is disabled. And I think part of the disengagement is also a fear because you can become disabled pretty quickly, whereas that's not the same for a lot of other marginalised identities, right? But there's also an issue with people being like, I just see you as a person, I don't see your disability, in the same way people say, I don't see colour, I don't see gender. And it's like, I understand what you're trying to get at, which is that you still see me as a person, but this is also part of my personhood. And I know, like a lot of disabled people I've also spoken with, would not give up their disability and would not change it for the world because it is a fundamental part of who you are. But then also, you can't just have that sensationalist message. You also need to have the adjustments that come with it. You can't just say, I recognise you as a person. You need to also say, I recognise the ways that your personhood is undermined by the people around Mm. you. I think the language we use is also important. I mean, if we talk about people with a disability instead of disabled people, You focus on the people and not the disability. Do, do you think it's that's interesting valid? that you say that, but um, I was speaking to somebody from CBM, formerly known as the Christian Blind Mission, and um, I said, I- I'm in a quandary. I spent some time in the States, so I, I effectively learned to refer to people with people with disabilities. And yet, over here, we say disabled people. And she was saying, well, that that is a cultural thing. And in this country, people prefer saying disabled people because it's looking at it from the social model Florence that you talked about so it's about the environment that's and society that's disabling somebody and not you know the impairment so it depends on what country you're in David. When I was part of the disabled students campaign at Cambridge University Students Union that was a specific decision we made to not use what's called person first language Mm -hmm. because essentially that is saying that like disabled person for me includes personhood doesn't make the person any lesser but often this person with a disability is kind of implying that there's something unpersonable about being disabled. And often people who actually aren't themselves disabled but are like parents or carers of disabled people will use people with disability, Mm. which is just kind of an interesting correlation. 
I think it just shows the fluidity of language as well. Mm. Even the word handicapped was the common parlance, wasn't it, 20 years ago? Yeah. Less, maybe. And now, you know, using the word disability or disabled, that's always going to change. Mm. That's always going to change. Well, talking of change, we're going to take a break and come back in a moment. You're listening to a podcast from the Wolf Institute. Have an idea for an episode? Got a question you want to ask Ed or another panel member? Email us at encounterpodcast at wolf.cam.ac.uk. Now back to the show. Welcome back. Pam, in, in your encounters, you gave three very powerful examples of failings. Have you had any encounters where you felt there was a real attempt, not just much to understand me, but to sort of grapple with these, the, the issue of the, you raised? How could a good God allow me to be disabled as I am? No. No. Is a short answer to that one, Ed. I right. haven't. Have you thought about other examples that aren't personal to you, where, you know, a case could be made, why hasn't God intervened? No, I can't think of any off the top of my head. I mean, I, th- I have thought of, you know, the, the, the cases where we've had, that have been in the news. Recently, the young child, High Court said doctors could do what they wanted, parents were devastated, Pope intervened and all of that kind of thing. And at that moment, it, it's why... It comes from a very emotive perspective for me, which is if, as the all-being, you are supposed to be the creator of life, why would you bring a child into the world that from the moment it it exits its mother's womb, it is suffering? It is born to suffer, and I don't see anything that is glorious about that or shows God's, I don't know... Engagement, yeah. Yeah. But, But why would we want a God that engages as actively in the way as you're describing. I mean, one of the ways that I I think about questions of suffering, if I can broaden it, Mm. questions of suffering, and how could God allow the terrible suffering that goes on, including disability, but also a whole myriad of other human sufferings. And the only way I can think about it is in terms of God actually isn't part of that suffering. I mean, God has created something, if we believe in in the creation story. If we have a belief in some kind of purpose and meaning to life, then there's only so much God can do. I don't think God can be omnipotent, omnibenevolent, omniscient, all of those things. And for us to believe that, you know, why isn't order so perfect? Order's not perfect. Therefore, God cannot be all of those things. I think some of it goes back to my very monochrome view of the world. And I'm not, I'm not very good at something that feels airy-fairy to me, mm. first of all. Second of all, and, and I don't have the language that you have to be able to put forth my, my own perspective and argument. But what I can say to you is that from a very young age, the concept of God was sold to me as omnipotent, as omnipresent, as omnibenevolent. So in which case, don't sell him that way. Don't promote that if, if that is not who he is. It's too simplistic, isn't it? I mean, that, it, that's, it is, that's basically it is, what you're saying. Yeah. So, you know, it's a kind of Disneyfied version of, you know, everything's beautiful, you know, and there's, there's only a place in the world for beautiful people. Yes. And the other problem that I have is that I am very much the, as an individual, I do everything I can to take responsibility for my actions, for my choices, for my decisions. And so I struggle with the idea that I should accept that this being is not taking responsibility 
for the suffering that that is caused. But I think you should struggle with it. I mean, from where I come from, it is, that's the whole point. It is a struggle. But it's a question of faith then, and and, and I I struggle to. I can't say I can't believe, because I have mentioned my tenuous relationship with God. But I struggle with the idea of faith. So I have to have faith to believe that it's okay for somebody else to to do these things and not take responsibility. responsibility. Mm. And I Mm. think that's one of the things I admire about people like you, Ed, and admire about you, is that you do have that faith in amongst all the grey. And I think it does pin back to what I am in this physical form. And does it come back to this rather simplistic notion that you were sold as a young person at whatever age about the perfection of the world, about, you know, God as perfect and and all of these these things and and realising that actually, no, I'm not. I am flawed in my own way. And it's that rather than anything else. I think it has a large part to do with it. I think it does. And I think also I've grown up with this idea that I, I should be somebody who can't succeed and I don't really understand why. I'm as good as anybody else. And when I say I, again, generally speaking, you know, it's this idea that we should be pitied. Pitied for what? And why? Because some some being or some scientific moment or whatever decided that I wasn't going to be. Is that not, though, the flawed human condition? To assume that because somebody's disabled, they are weak, they, they need compassion, they need pity and all of these things. And that, that can be a positive because there are times when you need help. There are times when I need help. It's when it goes beyond that, that it, it, it's sort of it's degrading you when it goes beyond a certain point. It's degrading when people continue to see me as an other and yes, they don't see you as, as you are. Yeah. That's the point, isn't it? Yeah. So your examples of the person who wants to pray for you because you're cursed or walking down the escalator or, or, or whatever it was, they were so set on their own agenda that they didn't see you or they just saw you as a type, mm. as a figure of something else. And in the end, it's, it's about trying to understand, reach out to that person as he or she is. Yeah. Ed, you're the theologian amongst us. Is there anything we can learn from Islam? Well, Islam, like other religions, has a mixed record as far as disability. There's a certain amount where a person who is disabled has an extra position in the Ummah and in Islamic society. But there's also a prevalent view amongst many Muslims that if you're disabled, you're cursed in some way, you've performed some kind of black magic. Beyond the Abrahamic faiths in uh, in India, for example, up until I think the late 1920s, early 30s, you couldn't inherit any land or any property if you were disabled. And even when that law was changed, I think there was a survey done in 2008 by the World Bank, the majority of Indians would view somebody who's disabled as being very other, Mm -hmm. you know, less than human, as it were. So I'm afraid to say, as somebody who might want to beat the drum for the benefits of, of religion, religion fails somewhat catastrophically, actually. And what you were saying earlier, Florence, in terms of some of these beautiful stories, whether they're in the New Testament or whether they're in the Hebrew Bible or in in the Quran or in other scriptures, they can be a bit platitudinous. If I may give an example, what you are talking about, the, the, I think you called it the catastrophic failure of religion. Leviticus, I think it's your favourite. None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God, for no one who has a blemish shall draw near. 
a man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face, or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot, or an injured hand, or a hunchback, or a dwarf, or a man with a defect in his sight, or an itching disease, or scabs, or crushed testicles. Thank Ouch. you, David. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like an NHS choice, doesn't it? I'm very pleased that wasn't my son's Torah portion that I had <laughs> about. But you're absolutely right that there are passages such as Leviticus that you just read, where it's very clear that being blemished, if I can use that term for being disabled, means that you can't enter the, the tabernacle, if you like, and, and be a priest. Now, clearly that has been abused to put down and subjugate people with disability. There is a theological argument to say that it simply refers to those who are high priests or to the priesthood, but I think that Pam is a cop-out, I would Mm -hmm. accept. At at, at the same time, there are plenty of alternative narratives in the Hebrew Bible. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of the second book of Samuel with uh, Jonathan, son of Saul. His son was disabled. Mm -hmm. He was disabled from a very young age, and that when David became king, he granted Jonathan's son land as any able-bodied person would. So we can pick and choose. The problem is the issues that Pam and Florence are raising are actually fundamental challenges to religion because in many ways religion both conceptually and practically has failed people of disability, actually has failed people of colour, has failed women, has failed on so many levels. So what do we do about that? Well, what we do is, from my point of view, is struggle with it and try and improve it and make it better so that people of disability who want to go to church very simply should be able to access the church or the synagogue or the mosque and so on. And challenge, as you would any racist or anyone who shows prejudice or um, stereotypes over whoever that person is and call them out. I think it's slightly easier said than done. I I agree. um, (laughs) Because these are texts... Quran, the Bible, the Torah, whatever, whatever, any of them. They're, they're texts that people have lived by for millennia. Because the text is always there to be abused. And also to be used as a form of control. Absolutely. And I, I had a conversation a number of years ago with a local historian, and I said, why historically have there been issues around Christianity in particular at that moment as part of the conversation that we were having, and disability? He was saying to me, it's the idea that God is perfect and man is made in God's image. And therefore, if you're not perfect, you cannot have been made in God's image and therefore you're some sort of aberration. So in terms of physical disability, but in terms also of being transgendered, because you are changing what God, quote unquote, gave you and what is in his image. And at that point, I sit there and think, well, I'm stuffed in, aren't I, really? It's it's that idea of control through that. Look, it's easy for me to say as an able-bodied person, right, and as a male and as a white man, right? So, But nevertheless, is there any reason, you know, feminist theologians have broken through this sort of maleness of God and seeing aspects of the divine in a feminine way? And so surely, why shouldn't we see aspects of the design in a disabled way? So one of my favourite theories at the moment, which I don't know a huge amount about, and so perhaps I might stuff myself over by even bringing it up, is intersectionality. 
I describe it as being like the Venn diagram of voices and of your, your personal narrative. It is all too easy to look at a woman, a middle, middle class white woman, and say, you are a feminist. And to look at a hijab wearing Muslim woman and say, well, how can you be a feminist when you're wearing a hijab? And it completely negates or, or, or ignores her narrative. In order for the church or, or, or Christianity and Judaism, Islam, for any of these religions to be more aware of and be more understanding and more accepting of disability, any kind of difference, any kind of other, it has to actually understand the different narratives that a person brings to its door. I mean, how many decades has it taken for women to, to be able to do that? Never mind a disabled woman or a disabled gay man. There are too many ifs, buts, and maybes around these different narratives. And, and as institutions, religions have been very comfortable in their very lofty position in society and have never been challenged before. And I'm not saying that the challenge can't happen or that it won't happen. It's just going to take a very long time. Would you concede though, both of you, that um, in a general sort of way, we've made significant progress in this area? Well, quite simply, I'm going to say no. But then, you know, the last time I went to church, I was about 15, and it was midnight mass. And then even with the people that I get to interview, yes, I'm sure everybody will say yes, but we are making it more accessible. You know, we, we, we do have sign language happening, or, or we do make sure it's on a screen, or, or we, we are more accessible. But they're missing the fundamental... And what is, the, what is me, that? What is it? For me, fundamentally, it is that I can walk into a church, a synagogue, a mosque, wherever it is, and not have someone look and question me, question why I'm there first, and then go, oh, okay, she's coming to worship. It's that moment of question. It's kind of, why? Why are you here? What, what's your purpose? Because... It seems and it feels, and, and you know, f- forgive me for offending if I do, but that because I have a disability, according to many others, I have no purpose. And that has caused me any number of issues because as I hit towards my 50s, I'm going, well, what is my purpose in life? How do I make a difference? If I can't make a difference in my own life, how am I then able to make a difference in anybody? It all sounds very garbled. I, you know, it I doesn't sound garbled. It sounds very, very real. And it's a fundamental question. Why should people view me in this way? Why do people see me like that rather than who I am? And all I can do is sigh <laughs> because religious institutions are constantly failing. I think in thinking about like the nature of purpose in terms of disability. Something maybe we haven't touched on is the very kind of capitalist notion of your worth is tied to your productivity. Mm-hmm. This comes up a lot, especially in cases of disability benefits, fitness for work type things, when people who you know are paralyzed from the waist down and told they're fit for work, these kinds of things where our society seems desperate to force people into work. And I was talking to a friend who doesn't work and gets personal independence payment, and they said to me, why am I not deemed a productive member of society if I make my friends happy? Like, why is that not valued? Why should I be arbitrarily judged on my ability to work in a charity shop or something, you know? Maybe that's an interesting thing to discuss is, like, how does 
or does religion perpetuate capitalist notions of the fact that we must be producing, we must be contributing to be allowed to be here? Well, I think there would be some socialist Christians and others who would challenge the capitalist notion. Yeah. But of course, there are others for whom productivity mm-hmm. is very much part of what they believe a human existence is about mm-hmm. and interpret stewarding the world and cultivating the world as, you know, parable of the talents. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there are plenty of arguments on, on both sides as far as the capitalist, socialist and different sure. systems are concerned. I'm left as we come towards the end of this uh, podcast with that almost harrowing question that you asked Pam that when I you walk down the aisle of a church you know people thinking why should I be there you know the the sort of raw anger that you feel is something that you should feel and yet how else are we going to challenge the religious institution not just the church but all of them to up their game without doing that There's a very interesting account I came across written by an American man called Randolph Bourne in 1911. He was quite strongly disabled. He says this, Do not take the world too seriously, nor let too many social conventions oppress you. Keep sweet your sense of humour, and above all, do not let any morbid feelings of inferiority creep into your soul. One of the things that I I find very amusing is that I present a a Sunday breakfast show and I come at it from the perspective of somebody who is agnostic, which baffles some of my guests. But it means then that I question. It does not mean that I accept a blanket answer. And in a five-minute interview, there's only so much that you can do, but but it means that I don't accept. And as much as I love that passage, David, Mm. that you read... It's all very well telling me to not worry about what other people think. I mean, and I don't because I'm 47 and I have pink hair. I don't care what other people think. But my life actually feels more often than not that the control and the power that I have over my own destiny is up to me. But at the same time, what other people think of me has a very direct impact on how much money I earn, how productive I am, the difference that I'm making in other people's lives, and my purpose within society. Because the moment I've walked in through the door, I have already been deemed less. And it isn't until I open my mouth and people get to know me that they can then decide, oh my goodness, she's a pain in the backside, that woman. Or, you know, maybe she has something valid to say or to give. So platitudes are wonderful, but it actually requires other people to to step forward and say, okay, well, you live your life. I'm not going to judge you for being different and for being other. And I am a lot angrier than I thought. I didn't (laughs) realise how angry I am about all of this, but I am actually. Well, I think you're right to be angry and you're right not just to raise the questions, but to shout the questions from the rooftops. And I really hope, Pam, that you're heard and that maybe in a few years' time, if you return to a, a place of worship, that you will feel somewhat surprised, maybe welcomed as who you are, not with the pity or whatever, but just as you, Pam Mungro, going into a place of worship and welcomed for who you are. And uh, if your anger and your questioning and your challenging and your battering down the prejudices and the obstacles that you've faced and that Florence is facing, then, you know, maybe we've helped those institutions 
do the work that they should be doing. So many thanks to you, Pam, Thank for you. spending time with us. Florence also. David, for your occasional contribution. <laughs> You've been listening to Encounter. My name is Ed Kessler. Next time, we'll be talking to Martin Rees. We'll be looking at some of the big questions, including the future of humanity. What could be bigger than that? Don't forget you can subscribe to us on iTunes or any podcast platform you use. And uh, thank you for listening. <laughs>